Once again, turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And uh, I'll be reading a passage that will in a sense be our starting point, but there's a few other passages and, and themes which I want to uh, draw out for this morning um, in consideration of our Lord's birth and His uh, incarnation and our hope in Him. So, turn with me to Luke 2 and, and uh, verses 25 to 32. Read along with me. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at these verses and other passages considering Jesus and our redemption, the only hope for mankind, help us to understand, help us to listen, help us to remember, help us to apply these words to our lives, to our faith. Please bolster our faith. Please guide us. And Lord, as I preach your word, I pray that you would guide me, guide my tongue. And you would edit in what you want in and edit out what you want out. That um, as I speak your word, that my words would be your words. And your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds for your people. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're anything like me or most people who have grown up in America or any other country, um, particularly in Western civilization in which Christmas is widely celebrated in the culture, you have either been taught to, uh, conditioned to, or sincerely and honestly developed this sense of hopeful anticipation towards the Christmas season and Christmas Day itself. And, and that's true, I think, even for those who have bad memories or grief that's associated with Christmas. Uh, for those who have uh, just maybe um, hard times during Christ Christmas, I would still venture to say that, that there's still a sense of hope within you as you um, come towards this holiday and the season. And there's several reasons for that. I think that one reason for why most of us feel this sense of hopeful anticipation towards the Christmas season is that within our culture, and it is for the most part a, a, a festive time of year, probably the, the most festive time of the year with all the lights and 
the decorations and events. And um, for those of you um, who are associated with school, whether you're uh, a parent, a teacher, or a student, or a child, the Christmas season also means time off from school. And which, <laughs> which also means time for rest and recreation and time with family and friends. And all of these reasons uh, to look forward to the Christmas season are good. But I think that for most of us, we've been conditioned to look forward to Christmas due to the gift giving. And whether you're giving or receiving gifts or both, that seems to be the main event of Christmas in our culture especially with all the materialism and, and everything going on. But that gift-giving, it's not entirely wrong, even if it's blown out of proportions. Because the gifts are supposed to re- be a reminder. They're supposed to remind us that, that God has given us the greatest gift of all in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the point of the gift-giving. And, and, and it stirs within us this, this hope. Um, this hope of of receiving something and that's supposed to to uh, direct our our thoughts and our attention towards Jesus Christ who who came as, as a gift of God the only savior for mankind and and so most of us because of everything in our culture because of the gift giving because we live in a culture in which Christmas is celebrated we have grown up looking forward to Christmas Uh, particularly in the hope of receiving gifts or enjoying the festivities. And I I think that attitude, that attitude of this hopeful anticipation towards Christmas is is the most fitting response to the the holiday and to the season, so long as it's grounded in the true meaning and point of Christmas. And so in in thinking about um, what I would preach on this morning... um, I wanted us to take a look at one of the most significant themes of the Christmas story. There's several themes associated with Christmas. Uh, we see it in pictures and, and signs, uh, uh, joy, uh, the light of the world, glory, uh, love. Um, but I want us to look at the theme of hope. Of hope, And particularly, I want us to look at three aspects of the hope of Christmas, or rather three biblical reasons for the hope of Christmas, and ultimately what that hope is, uh, uh, what that, that hope is focused on. As most of us know, the Lord Jesus Christ and, and the, the reason for this hope that we should have, three reasons specifically. And the first reason being the hope of redemption. The hope of redemption. And if you're familiar with the Bible or, or Christianity or are a strong believer, you know that redemption is at the heart of Christianity. It, it, and it's also at the heart of the meaning of Christmas. But the Bible speaks of two aspects of redemption. Uh, we, we think of redemption in terms of our personal redemption. That is true and that is right. That is good. That's most important to us. But the Bible talks about two aspects of redemption. First, the redemption from corruption, and then the redemption from sin. When we think about the redemption from corruption, some of us know what I'm getting at, but for others, it doesn't take much much by way of observation to notice that most things in the world don't function the way they should. 
Governments don't function the way they ought to. Families don't work out the way they ought to. Um, in fact, I dare say for um, every one of us, or even most of us, our families aren't what they should be. And some of us, we come from very broken and messed up families. And in fact, as we look at the world and we look at nearly every human endeavor, we see brokenness. We see corruption. And that's because the world is broken. And it's corrupted because it's cursed. It's cursed by God. And we see this in the beginning of the Bible. It's, it's the third chapter. The first two chapters are, are wonderful and glorious. And then we get to the third chapter, and then we see this fall. And, and the reason why everything is broken, why everything's corrupted, why everything doesn't work the way it should be, or it should, or the way God had designed it to work. And so the, 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 the good news always begins with the bad news. We read in, in Genesis 3 that... After Adam fell into sin, after he ate the fruit, after uh, Satan had tempted Eve, and then Eve, in a sense, uh, gave the fruit to Adam, who was right there with her as she was being tempted. And, and so he, being the head of the human race, ate and fell into sin. He disobeyed God on, on several accounts. And then God confronts him, and he says this in Genesis 3.17. He says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is why there is disease, why there is decay, why there is death. Because the wages of sin is death. That's the response, that's the outcome of disobeying your creator and his design for you. That Adam disobeyed, and because we are in Adam... In a sense, because we all come from Adam, we fell as well. But that fall didn't just affect Adam and, and his, his progeny and, and all his offspring, but it, it flowed outward to the earth itself. And creation itself was cursed. And so we read that thorns and thistles came up to make work hard. And we sweat, and it's not easy. And, and there's frustrations But even in light of corruption, even in light of the fall, even in light of brokenness, ever since the fall, there has been this hope of redemption from the fall. There's this interesting uh, verse in uh, Genesis 5, as we read on, and Genesis 5 is known as the graveyard chapter. We read the genealogies of these people that that begat one another. And, and after each person, it says, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Over and over again, telling us that we die because of sin. But then as it gets to Noah and Lamech, um, fathers Noah, it says in Genesis 5.29, now he called his name Noah, saying, this one 
will give us rest from our work and from the pain of our hands arising from the ground which Yahweh has cursed. There, there was hope of a deliverer. And in a sense, Noah did was a deliverer, but he wasn't perfect. He was sinful as well. He was a righteous man. He, he preached this message of righteousness. And, and he did, uh, in a sense, uh, obey God in the flood. And he was redeemed, but he wasn't the redeemer we were looking for. He wasn't the one that would reverse the curse. That would come later. And so we see this, this hope of redemption starts with the hope of redemption from corruption, but more specifically, redemption from sin. Which as we look at, at the Old Testament and we, we go through the whole, the patriarchs and, and, and the, the nation of Israel, we see this, this hope weaved throughout the whole Old Testament. The, this hope of redemption from corruption and redemption from sin is the hope of all the Old, Old Testament saints. It was the hope, hope of Israel. It was, it was a hope that they were looking for in, in each leader that would rise up and many of the prophets and many of the kings, but many of them failed. And even, even Job, which was chronologically the first book written, <clears throat> that Job, in the midst of his pain and his suffering, he says this in Job 19.25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that the last he will rise up over the dust of this world. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall behold God. This was Job's hope. This was the hope of Israel. And what's interesting is, as we have read part of this birth narrative in Luke 2, we can turn back maybe just one page, and we see this hope in Zechariah's prophecy. As the father of John the Baptist, and we know a little bit about the story, how he was, in a sense, given this prophecy from an angel that he in his old age, and him and his wife would have a son, and this son would be the forerunner to the Messiah. And because he didn't believe, he was struck mute, but yet uh, he prophesied after his birth. In Luke 1, 67, it says this, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he visited and accomplished redemption for his people. And raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. This is a hope of all the Old Testament saints. This is a hope of Israel. This is a hope of mankind. This is a hope of Christmas. A hope of redemption. That there would be a redeemer one day that would come and reverse the curse. That would save us from our sins. I like what J.I. Packer says. Uh, that theologian says that the Christian message is that there is a hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. Which brings us to the second reason for the hope of Christmas. The hope of a man. The hope of a man and, and particularly the God-man. You know, it's interesting as we uh, survey the Old Testament and then even um, up until the birth of, of Christ in his birth narrative, we see that uh, the saints always look for a redeemer, always look for a man.
But there's also a sense that that sinful man has always looked for uh, a man to for redemption. Either that may be a, a political redemption, or a natural, uh, earthly redemption from uh, certain uh, tragedies or famine or war. Mankind has always looked for a man as a deliverer, usually in a king. But in a religious aspect, man has looked for a holy man. We see this not only in Christianity, not only in Judaism, but in all the religions of the world that there is a sense that, that uh, man, in a religious sense, looks for a holy man. Someone who, who is different than them. Someone who is separate. Someone who is holy. Someone who is righteous, trustworthy, good. Someone who knows uh, all the answers to why we struggle, why we hurt, why we have pain, uh, how we can be delivered. Man looks for man, for deliverance in man. This goes back to, in a sense, our, our, our intuition that there is a Redeemer as Job spoke. And we are looking for that Redeemer, for a holy man. But also for a spokesman. Someone who can speak for God because he speaks to God and knows him. He knows God. And this was the, the office of the prophets. That they would not only uh, uh, know God and, and, and speak to God, but that they would speak from God. That they would, uh, as we know, thus saith the Lord. They could say, thus saith the Lord to the people uh, with authority and with conviction. Because they knew God and they could speak on behalf of God. But even as we read the, throughout the whole Old Testament and the history of the prophets, even the, the best of the prophets failed in some regard. Even the, some, some of the greatest ones, we, we read of Elijah and how um, great he was in, in the miracles. And, and he is, in a sense, the Bible, in a sense, uh, uh, almost lifts him up as the premier prophet. But nonetheless, he still had his moments of doubt and, and, and when, in which he faltered and he failed. And, and even before uh, a sinful, wicked woman. But we can go as far back as, as, as the law in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses, as he's giving the second reading of the law, he says this to the Israelites. He says, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. You shall listen to him. And this is, this is where Jesus was pointing to when he talked to the, Old Test, to the, to the Jews of his day and, and said, if you believe Moses, you would believe me because Moses spoke of me. You, you should have been looking for me. And, and there was a sense in which they were looking for him. They were looking for their Messiah. They were looking for a Redeemer. But they were more along the lines looking for uh, his second coming. They were looking for a conquering king. And he is a conquering king, but he first came to save sinners. But there is a sense that man places his hope in man, and particularly a holy man. And for the Jews, for uh, many religions, they're looking for a spokesman, for a prophet, someone who can speak for God, someone who knows about God and can make him known. It's interesting, uh, this, this narrative, as we um, look at John chapter 3, this narrative of Jesus with Nicodemus. 
And we're familiar with John 3.16, one of the, the most famous passages in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But just prior to that, as uh, Jesus meets with Nicodemus, and Nic Nicodemus, one of the rulers of the Jews, uh, comes and, and knows that here is this man that has come who does miracles, who teaches, who is holy, who is different, who is separate. And it seems as if he's speaking for God and, and Nicodemus comes to him at night and asks him about the kingdom of God and, and, and who he is. And Jesus explains to him, you must be born again. You must be born again. And, and Nicodemus doesn't quite get it. And then in John uh, 3.12, he says this, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so this must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. I mean, it's an interesting uh, uh, phrase in this sentence that Jesus says to Nicodemus. In verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, in a sense, pointing to his ascension, but also there's a sense that he's telling Nicodemus, hey, hey, listen, Nicodemus, I know what I'm talking about. And you should know what you're talking about because you're the teacher of Israel and you don't get these things. This is all throughout the Old Testament. This new birth, the new covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But I'm telling you, I'm going into heaven and I've come from heaven, and I can speak about heaven. And this is ultimately the type of man that we are looking for. A holy man, a spokesman, someone with authority, but third, a middleman. Someone who can, can represent God to man, someone who can, can represent man to God, a priest, a, a, a mediator. As John says in his gospel, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him, that, that Jesus has, in a sense, explained God to man. He can represent God to man. He is the God-man. He is the perfect high priest, as, as the writer to the Hebrews would, would try to explain to the Hebrews time and time again, those uh, 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 Jewish background believers who were faltering in their faith in the Messiah and were thinking about turning back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. The author to Hebrews says this in Hebrews 2.17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He came as a holy man, the holiest of mans, as a, a, a spokesman for God, a perfect prophet, and as a middleman, a, a, a perfect priest, a, a, the great high priest. Because just as much as a, the priest continued to offer sacrifices day and night, those sacrifices couldn't save because they had to continue time after time after time. And if they were faithful to do it, they, they would be sacrificing constantly. All those sacrifices failed because they point, 
pointed to a perfect sacrifice and a greater priest, a perfect high priest, Jesus. As, as Paul says to Timothy, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's, he's the only mediator for us. He's the only way to God, the only way to know God, the only way to that, that we can come before God, that we can uh, be presented righteous before God is in Him. It's interesting as we looked at these, this, this hope of man in these three aspects of Jesus as a holy man, a spokesman, and a middleman. The Bible speaks of three offices of Christ, of prophet, priest, and king, which He fulfilled perfectly. Which brings us to this third aspect of hope. This third reason, this biblical reason for the hope of Christmas, seeing the hope of redemption, the hope of a man, and third and finally, the hope of a king, the king of kings, a a, a true king, a a king that as we read the the gospel accounts, and particularly uh, Matthew and then Luke, we see both in Matthew and Luke these genealogies. Matthew goes back to Abraham. And to show that he is the seed, that Jesus is the seed of Abraham, the, the legitimate king of the line of David. Luke goes all the way back to, to Adam, to God, the son of God. That, that he is a true king. He, 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 is, uh, he is an authoritative king. He he is the only one who can sit on the throne of David, on the throne of Israel. He's, he's unlike King Herod. As we read further in this, this birth narrative, and we were reminded of, of uh, Herod's uh, reply to the, the wise men who come searching for Jesus, who has been born king of the Jews, and, and he gives this ruse. He says, go find him and then come and report back to me so that I can go worship him and and." And then he exposed what was really in his heart. That he didn't want anyone else to reign but him. And what's interesting, if you know a little bit about Herod, Herod the Great, is he was an Edomian. This means he was an Edomite. He was from the line of Esau. He wasn't even an Israelite. He wasn't a true king. He was an opportunistic, narcissistic, paranoid despot. <laughs> and and it's, it's true. No, he was cutthroat. Read a little bit more about him. And if you know a little bit about Herod the Great, then you'll go to that, that narrative where he slaughters all the babies under two, all the male children under two in Bethlehem. And if you know a little bit about Herod, you'll say, well, that's Herod. That's how evil and wicked he was. He wasn't a true king. He wanted to murder the true king. But Jesus was the true king. He's unlike Herod, unlike many kings of Israel. As we read in the Old Testament of, of the, the divided kingdom and how it divides from Judah in the south and, and, and then uh, Israel divides in the north, uh, two tribes of Judah and, and ten tribes um, of Israel. And all the Israelite kings were, in a sense, uh, false kings. They, the only true line of kingship uh, coming from David came through Judah and all the kings of Israel were unrighteous 
They were illegitimate. And even the kings of Judah weren't all that great either. But we read the prophecies and at the end of as Jacob prophesies, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The true king of Israel had to come from the line of Judah. And that was Jesus. As Mark, as Matthew lists, as Luke lists out. But more than being a true king, he was a righteous king. He was a righteous king. And this is, you know, even, even for unbelievers. Even for those who are, are atheistic, agnostic, or, or just don't want anything to do with religion. They still hope for a righteous king. Even if they are not righteous themselves, everybody wants a good king. Everybody wants a righteous king. They want a benevolent um, leader who will lead and rule in righteousness, who will punish evil and praise those who do good, as, as uh, the Bible says leaders are to do. But no leader really does that. And because no leader really does that or has done that perfectly, we look for a righteous king. A righteous king who is unlike other kings, who is even greater than the best of kings. Even as we look in the, the history of the kings, uh, and, and even the greatest of them, such as Josiah or Hezekiah, have their failures. Even Solomon. Uh, probably he started off really well, the golden age of Israel for maybe about a year or two. And then he declined and he fell. And then, then even David, as a man after God's own heart, he had his failures as well. But Jesus would be perfect. He is perfect. A righteous king, a true king. But lastly, and most importantly, an eternal king. A king who lives forever. Who... who who, whose reign is uncontested and unceasing and unchallenged. His reign will never end. He, and he lives forever to make intercession for us, to intercede on our behalf for all those who would repent and believe upon him and, and bow the knee to him. As that scripture from Philippians 2 was read earlier, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ as Lord because he is Lord. Whether you uh, submit to it or not, whether you admit it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, He is Lord of the whole universe because He's created it. He's come into it. He's walked amongst this, this earth. He's lived out God's law perfectly. And He defeated sin, death, and hell to reign forever. You know, in thinking about the hope of Christmas and this, this hope of Redemption of salvation of a perfect man, of a true king, a perfect king. You know, we, we think of what we lack, how we fail, our, our greatest need for redemption. And, and we're so prone to place our hope in so many other things even if it's, it's not from a religious perspective, even if it's just from an earthly perspective, to place our hope in circumstances, to place our hope in bank accounts and material possessions and relationships and our health. But even from a, a religious aspect, there's, there's nothing we can truly 
hope in uh, works or giving or anything that, that could uh, commend us to God. I like what Paul Tripp wrote in his Advent devotional. He says this about the birth of Jesus Christ. He says this, that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is a gracious rebuke to all who put their hope in human righteousness, wisdom, and strength. And it takes a while to, to, to get that, to think about that, that, that Jesus' birth is a gracious rebuke to all those who put their hope in human righteousness, wisdom, and strength. As Paul would say in Galatians 2, if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for no reason. If we could work our way to heaven, if we could clean our act up ourselves, then, then we don't need a redeemer. We don't need a savior. If we could somehow figure things out, this world out on our own, and figure relationships out on our own, we wouldn't need a savior or a wonderful counselor. We wouldn't need the prince of peace. If we, by our own strength, could could make our way to to heaven or to uh, uh, make this world a utopia, we wouldn't need the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to come and to uh, reign in righteousness, to defeat all evildoers. And so as we consider Christmas and this hopeful anticipation of Christmas, And the true meaning of Christmas, I want us to reflect upon this hope of Christ and the hope of redemption, the hope of a man, the hope of a king, these three aspects of hope that are found only in Christ. This hope of a redeemer, the hope of a perfect man, the God-man of a perfect king, a king who will return one day soon to destroy all evildoers, to rule and reign in righteousness. And to restore all things, to wipe every tear from every eye, to make all things new, to bring about uh, his kingdom on earth, a, a, a new heavens and a new earth uh, where righteousness uh, it flows. There's one, many Old Testament prophecies, but there's one in particular which in studying this I, I came across. Uh, one Old Testament prophecy of Jesus Christ, which most of us are probably not familiar with, and I don't think you would see it quoted around Christmas times. But for those of you who know your Bible, some of the words will be familiar to you. And I bet these words were familiar to Simeon as well, as he was hoping and waiting for the consolation of Israel or the comfort of Israel as he saw the Lord's Christ. And it's interesting, even as I read this account of Simeon, and what, what always gets me is, is as uh, Mary and Joseph carry Jesus in, it says, then he took him into his arms. <laughs> he's just this, this wild, crazy man who's waiting for, so he's like, there he is. And he just grabs this baby <laughs> and blesses him because of the hope of what he was waiting for. And I bet he knew this passage and several passages like this in Isaiah 25. And there's several passages of, of Jesus in Isaiah, but this one particular, Isaiah 25, 8 and 9, says this concerning the Messiah. 
He will swallow up death for all time. And Lord Yahweh will wipe away tears from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For Yahweh has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God in whom we have hoped that he would save us. This is Yahweh in whom we have hoped. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is the hope of Christmas. And and if you have... If you're here this morning, you have not placed your hope in Jesus Christ for salvation. If you're not trusting in Him and Him alone for salvation, for heaven, uh, completely not in your works, not in your knowledge, not in your giving, not in your prayers, but in Christ and Christ alone. I think there's no better time than Christmas to receive this gift of God. And as Paul says to Ephesians, it is by grace that you're saved and not of works. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. No one may boast. But if you have received him and you have hoped in him, then you should do as Isaiah calls us to do and as Simeon did. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That is our hope. That is our joy. That is our peace That is why we sing. That is why we celebrate. And sadly, I say this mostly for myself, um, and it's probably true for many of you, that in my Christian life, there's not enough joy. There's not enough joy. It's too often I base my joy on my circumstances and not on Christ. But this Christmas, let's remember Christ and the hope we have in him. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in our humble estate, in our sinfulness, in our brokenness, in our corruption, in our rebellion against you, you showed your love by sending us a Savior, a Redeemer, who took on flesh so he could walk amongst us. So he could be tempted in every way in which we are, yet without sin. So he could be this perfect sacrifice, a a faithful high priest, a, a sympathetic high priest, a perfect high priest to intercede for us, to die for us, and to, in a sense, clothe us in his righteousness. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to be thankful for Jesus, to rest in Jesus, to hope in Jesus, and to proclaim Jesus until that day in which we see Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.